This is the Incremental Gains Podcast, helping you to improve on yesterday, every day. This podcast is brought to you by Maximum Edge CIC. For more information, go to www.maximumedge.org.uk. Before I introduce my guest today, I just want to put it into a little bit of context. Some of the stuff we've been talking about over the previous episodes has been what we consider core life skills, so looking at your self-talk, motivation, mindset, challenging behaviours. A common theme that's run through these episodes has been a subject about ego, talking about ego, controlling ego and having a healthy ego. And I thought, what better way to discuss it than in the context of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu now, if you're listening to this and you think, what the hell have I tuned into? I don't know what Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is. I'm not into martial arts. Just keep listening. We will be discussing, obviously, Jiu-Jitsu, but we'll also get into controlling the ego and self-talk, using the Jiu-Jitsu as a platform. So without further ado, let me introduce my guest, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Black Belt under Flavio Almeida, owner and head instructor of Gracie Barra Bolton and Gracie Barra Walkden, and my own jiu-jitsu instructor, also published author. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Oh, well, I've got a long and distinguished <laughs> career, actually. Um, I started off in the health and fitness industry, right. um, which was 1991, and I opened my first gym. And then I sold that out. I actually expanded till I actually had seven facilities right. in the end. And then I sold it out as a small group really before the big health and fitness boom really took off. Um, got into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu though at a very late age. I mean, I didn't start until I was 39. Right. So, you know, it's very much a young man's game. A yeah, lot of yeah. the time, not, yeah. not so much as things like, say, kickboxing or, or karate or mixed martial arts. Very, very much a young man's game. I don't think I'd want to make that transition. And, and I think that maybe for the listeners, they need to understand as well, there's a big difference between mixed martial arts Brazilian yeah, Jiu-Jitsu. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to try and uh, get you to talk a little bit about that, but you can yeah. break that down now if you want Yeah, you sure, sure. I mean, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is based purely around grappling. Okay, and the kind of Jiu-Jitsu that we tend to specialise in is more Gi Jiu-Jitsu. So we're wearing the traditional kimono right. kind of yeah. setup. Whereas a lot of mixed martial arts is based around kickboxing, um, boxing, wrestling, and jiu-jitsu because you still need those submission skills when you're on the ground yeah we concentrate mainly about grappling on the ground with the submissions yeah so that's where we're sort of focused on and that's where the big difference is we're not um, a cage fighting or a fight club kind of mentality yeah. i think it's uh, important to clear that up in it because yeah. when people do see jiu-jitsu brazilian jiu-jitsu especially they're like oh it's just it's cage fighting it's form people yeah. don't necessarily understand the art separate from the actual sport of MMA, did it? Uh, and, uh, and how technical yeah. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is. I mean, if you get to higher level Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu practitioners like me and Mike, Mike's our assistant coach, the brown belt Mike. Um, Mike, me and Mike trained under Kyle Terra for a long time. Mm-hmm. Kyle Terra has this belief that, that once you get to a certain point in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, memory is the biggest function of right. winning the match than actual physical athleticism. Yeah. So, you know, if you can remember... The counter to the counter to the counter. Yeah, exactly, yeah. If you're a good chess player, you'll probably be good at Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, yeah. you know, rather than just being sort of like, um, you know, like a muscle kind of guy. That will take you so far. It really will. But it, it, in wrestling, it'll take you a lot further athleticism mm. than the technical skills that are required within Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. 
that's what I've always felt. And that's why even at 39, by the time I'd got to say 45, and just just again to put this in context of, of the podcast, I'm 50 now. Yeah. So um, within that context, by the time I got to about 45, I realised I could beat younger guys by just outsmarting them rather than outmuscling them. Yeah. So, um, and, it, and it's very interesting that as well, if you get sort of younger guys who are, um, their, their ego will drive them out of this game and into something else quicker than if they're not strong enough or, yeah. or they haven't got a good gas tank and they can't mm. last an hour. That tends to not happen so much. It tends to be that they, the, the hearts get broken yeah. because they just can't take it that this old guy <laughs> is throwing them all over the place and they're going, ah, and they really, really want to make a better progress or position in the match. Yeah. But uh, they can't make it. And sometimes, especially when they've been training for a couple of years, the hearts get broken, which really is, their ego gets yeah, broken. Courses, yeah. Then, yeah. then they just can't face up to the fact that they just need to learn a little bit more, be more patient, yeah. be calmer under pressure. Yeah. It's interesting uh, you, use the, the, you mentioned chess before, and a lot of people do talk about it being like human chess, and it's just problem solving yeah. in stressful situations, isn't Absolutely, it? Broken yeah. down like... And yeah. you know when somebody's kneeling on your face and uh, you're they're heavier than you and and it's a stressful situation and you you're trying to think of a way to sort of like get out of that position and they're, they're attacking your arm yeah. while they're kneeling on your face. There's always the tap. The tap is the key yeah. to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and I'm sure lots of the listeners will know what the tap is um, because again through mixed martial arts we sort of understand that yeah. if we tap twice, your partner's going to let you go or you you, you have effectively been submitted. But it's the thing that makes a big division between Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and lots of other martial arts. Yeah. I mean, if you think about, say, for example, kickboxing. If we went at 100%, you know, full contact at the end of every training session, <laughs> it, wouldn't say, it wouldn't take you six months before you've pretty much got brain damage, you know. Yeah, yeah. You, you couldn't train for a long period of time, like into your 50s, into your 60s. And into your 70s, you can still yeah. train, you can still coach, um, you can still be active, you know, within Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And it's only because we can go boom, boom, tap twice, your partner releases, you reset the position, and then you start again. Yeah, and you get a lot of feedback from that tap as well, don't you? So you, you know, you, you're going to be learning by failing predominantly, aren't you? Absolutely, that's, that's it. Fail fast. Yeah. And I always say to all the new guys, all the white belts, you've got to tap a thousand times before you get to your black belt. <laughs> And it's very, very true, and that's what my instructor told me. And, you know, yeah. he's like a phenomenon in the uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Yeah. For all those who aren't aware of uh, Flavio Almeida, Google is your friend. Go and look him up on Google, and there'll be a raft of information out there. But he, you'll, you'll tell us a little bit more, obviously, Barry, about him. But he, at one point, he was considered to be in the top echelons of the sport, wasn't he? And one of the top practitioners. Yeah, very, very much so. I mean, Flavio now has got to be about 35, 36 years old, which in... The sort of like the elite level of the sport side of things, he's old, he's, he's, yeah. he's past it. But they still have um, Masters tournaments. So uh, Flavio gets, goes in for Masters tournaments every now and then. And then last year, um, he, he actually fought 16 times in that year. Um, some of them as well were pro matches. And in the whole year, he only got two points scored against him. In the yeah. whole, whole 12 months, 16. And don't forget, he's not fighting guys who are new to the sport who just think, like, I'm going to give it a go. He's up against really, really super tough, yeah, high-level yeah. black belts. So he's a phenomenon. But he's been training since he was 13. And he talked, he, he gave a speech recently about 
um, the character building elements of Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, mm. again, which will come back around to the subject yeah. that we're talking yeah. about today. So the first thing that he said was that, you know, tough, tough times create tough people, but tough people create good times. Mm. So where we were training at the time, I trained for seven years in Southern California. And there is nowhere better in the world to get stuck. <laughs> you know, it's not called Bolton Jiu-Jitsu, it's called Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Yeah. So Southern California has a very, very similar climate, but it has a very affluent, um, uh, you know, culture that you're going to live in. You know, mm -hmm. all the kids drive to school in really cool cars. When my kids first started at school, I, I wondered where I was because I get there. Now, kids can drive at 15 years old in right. Southern California. Yeah. All the parents... Are very very wealthy individuals so um, I got there and there's these classic Mustangs Mercedes Porsches <laughs> in, in the parking lot of the high school yeah you know and um, but the problem is that Flavio the way Flavio sees it is these tough people create good times the problem is lots of good times and affluence creates weaker characters yeah so in Southern California they have a huge drug problem but what happens is then weak characters create tough times, mm -hmm. and then tough times create tough people, and which then flips it, on which flips it, yeah. and the cycle continues. Yeah. These tough times are created by by weaker characters, unfortunately. Um, and and in Brazil they sort of have this saying that your grandfather becomes a miner, which allows the son to become a farmer, and the farmer allows the grandson to become an artist. Yeah. But then the artist will allow the weaker times to come, <laughs> the affluence to come, so then the, the son of the, the artist will have to become a miner. Yeah. And then his son will become a farmer, and his son will become an artist. Yeah. Uh, and this is just a cycle of evolution that he recognises through Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Because Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu a lot of the time creates these, these characteristics inside yourself. Yeah. You see that in life though as well, don't you? Because one of the things we've spoke about in other episodes that we've done is as humans, we need an amount of struggle, don't we? We need an amount of adversity or struggle or that stress to, to build resilience. So when we have tough times, we, we come through and break through those times, don't we? We do, we do. And, and just to give you a little bit more about a background of me, um, when, I, when I sold these gyms, right, I sold seven gyms and I became a millionaire. And that, So by the time I was 29 years old, I was a millionaire. By the time I was 33, I was broke. Um, I never went bankrupt, but I was very, very close to becoming bankrupt. Right. Um, so how do you get from there to there? It's because we also don't have those skills to handle large amounts of wealth yeah, yeah. when we're very, very yeah. young. By the time I, I was 33, um, with all this money, I didn't know my asshole from the ear all, yeah. I'll tell you. And, you know, and, and it took me a long time, probably took me to sort of like 46, 47, to sort of like realise a lot of those life skills that I'd learned that were positive, yeah. even though they seemed negative at the time. I mean, I was very, very depressed, clinically depressed. Um, you know, I had to go under a psychiatrist and all these, these things that I had to go through. Um, took lots of medication to try and balance out. I think sometimes as well, when, when stress, negative stress, not positive stress, yeah. Positive stress I see as challenges. Negative stress are very, very serious life events where we almost think to myself, I don't need to be here. Mm -hmm. I really don't need to be here. I do have a choice. So if we get to those sort of points in life, sometimes we don't realize that it's almost like a chemical reaction inside our bodies. Yeah. And that chemical reaction inside our bodies, that, that adrenaline dump that we get, 
when that adrenaline dump is dumped on a consistent basis, our serotonin levels can't yeah. cope yeah. with this balance. Yeah. It's almost the same as saying, um, you know, when you see somebody who's clinically depressed, they're no different than somebody who's diabetic. They're have, the diabetic person is having a problem with insulin. They yeah. need to be able yeah. to manage that insulin. The, the, the person who is clinically depressed, he's having a problem with serotonin and norepinephrine. And because they can't manage those levels, mm-hmm. they need a chemical balance. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes we just can't manage that. I, I te- I, one of the things with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu that I found, when I was in California, I moved my family 7,000 miles. Um, I was setting up a new business. I had no contacts. When I arrived in California, I, had, I knew one person. <laughs> and I had to build up a brand new business from the ground up. Yeah. And it was very, very stressful. Jiu-Jitsu saved my life. I kid you not. Wow. So it's very, very difficult to think about your daily stresses and, and that client that needs this to happen tomorrow when somebody's choking you. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It definitely keeps you present, doesn't it, in the present moment. It keeps like you, you in the yeah. present moment. And yeah. if we can stay in that present moment for longer periods of time, we can manage that in the day. Yeah. We don't need somebody, like I say, choking us out in the day to understand that, um, that okay, this isn't this guy not getting his internet marketing delivered on Monday isn't the end of the world. Yeah. Okay. Sometimes, the first thing, I also, through jiu-jitsu, I've learned a lot about stoic philosophy. If the listeners... I know you said you hadn't listened to any of the podcasts, but some of them, we do talk quite a lot about stoic philosophy and... Um, Marcus Aurelius and Marcus Seneca Aurelius and, that, and yeah, Seneca yeah. Right, again and yeah. um, Sonius Rufus yeah. and these guys if the listeners want to try and get some sort of like perspective on Brazilian Jiu Jitsu a lot of Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and the lots of things that are taught to us by Carlos Gracie Jr. come from a lot of Stoic philosophy wow I didn't know that actually yeah so yeah. I, I only learned about Stoic philosophy through Brazilian Jiu Jitsu right. it wasn't the other way around yeah. that so, wasn't planned by the way listeners this isn't planned <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know that <laughs> So, um, lots of Stoic philosophy falls in line with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And, and it, like I say, if any of the listeners get opportunities, a, a good book to read is um, The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. Go to Amazon, look it up. It's a famous book. You'll have no problem getting hold yeah. of it. Um, the first chapter talks about perspective. So, in Jiu-Jitsu, um, like we, me and Dave were saying, that the tap, when you've tapped in a particular situation... You know what situation you were in, you can remember it. You go home, you look on YouTube, you find out what the solution is to that problem, and then you apply that. The next time that you find yourself in that situation, you know how to get out of it. Yeah. And you build your game yeah. based around these getting out of bad situations. Mm-hmm. But they're all challenges. These are challenging situations. They're not life-threatening situations. You don't feel the same level of stress. Mm-hmm. Younger guys are tend to find feel it bigger. They feel that because they've lost a match, this is almost like a life-crushing yeah. defeat. Yeah. And it isn't, honestly. I mean, I've been to tournaments and um, I've gone to register. Now, I'm old, so I'm an older guy. The people, that, the older guys at my age that want to still fight one another on a weekend when you can be watching telly and having a beer, watching the football, yeah. is very, very small. So sometimes I turn up and there's nobody else in my division. Okay, so I'm, 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 I'm a heavy guy. I'm 90 kilos. Um, I'm, at, I'm at a certain level in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I'm black belt now, mm-hmm. but when I was still competing, I was still competing, it's all like purple belt, brown belt level. Yeah. The, nobody would show up. So I would get there, and what would happen is, the, the tournament organiser would go, okay guys, um, oh, uh, you've turned up Mr. Crowther, um, 
there's nobody in your division. So what what do you want to do? Do you want us to just give you the gold medal and <laughs> and a t-shirt? And I'm thinking, well, I've paid thirty quid to enter for this tournament, so I could buy that medal for four quid. No thanks. Can you drop me into a different division? Yeah. So they would always drop me age range, so that I was still at the same rank. So but I'm fighting younger guys, mm-hmm. which is fine for me. For them, there's a lot more on the line. They've got a lot more to lose if they lose to an older guy. Yeah, yeah. And they would really, really, really do everything they possibly could to get the win. And sometimes they just weren't good enough, I beat them. So I would get the win. Mm-hmm. That would be a crushing defeat for them. And they would go home and they would be thinking about it and they would eat away at him for a week. It's a four pound medal. <laughs> yeah. That's it. When they get to the end of their lives, they'll not look back and say, oh, I remember getting that bronze in the, <laughs> in the Wigan Open. <laughs> it won't happen. Yeah. Everything's about perspective. Every time we spend time on the mats, it's all about perspective. And some of the younger guys have to come yeah. alongside and say, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Just reset the clock, come back next week, try again. You'd, you'd always judge yourself, or I would always judge myself on the last role that I had. Right. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. whatever that performance was, that last role, someone taps you, be like, oh, I've gone down, I've gone down level, why am I not improving in that? But then I took my ego out of it, like became a bit more objective and thought, well, I'm gone. I'm looking at that last role through like a magnifying glass. I might have had a tough day at work. I might have had a, a tough week. Doesn't matter, does it? Doesn't matter. So I just moved, moved on. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the, the, the key factors as well that um, a guy taught me, this guy called Jeff Thompson. Um, Jeff Thompson. We spoke about Jeff Thompson as well. Right, well, there you go. It's not set up, guys. Yeah. But, but Jeff Thompson, I worked with Jeff, I would say, 11, 12 years ago. Right. At, uh, he used to run courses at, uh, in Coventry at the 87. So I would yeah, go like down. Animal days. Animal day. Like I would that, yeah. go down and do yeah. an animal day. Really? Yeah, I would go down and do an animal day every now and then with Jeff. Yeah. So I, I trained with Jeff. Now I, I got myself into a couple of very, very. This is when I was going through a very, very dark period of my life as well when I met Jeff, and and Jeff just said to me, "Is this pre Brazilian Jiu Jitsu?" This days? is pre Brazilian yeah. Jiu Jitsu days. This is me just testing myself because I, I, I'm also a red armband in Muay Thai. Mm-hmm. So I trained for eleven years in Muay Thai. Is that important? Because um, Sandy, is it Sandy Holt? No, I trained with Master Skin in Manchester. Right. So, uh, Master Skin is Sandy Holt's professor. Right. Yeah, he's he's his crew. We, we, but Jeff sort of like drew us back to this position where he would say, first off, what's the event? So you would look at the event, and he'd say, if the event goes bad or good, can you handle the outcome? Pretty much anything in your life, the answer is yes. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe the only thing that we ever thought where this is so unbelievably stressful that you're going to have to have a coping mechanism for the rest of your life was the death of a child. Right. Outside of the death of a child, pretty much anything that happens to you can handle. Going bankrupt, so what? Okay, you're not going to be able to get a credit card for three years, yeah. but that's about it. And pretty much anything that happens perspective-wise in your life you can handle yeah. pretty much anything. That's quite stoic, isn't it? Because I remember, I think Seneca, in one of his letters in his book, he talks about practising that what would be the worst case scenario. So if you lost all your money, maybe practise for a week just eating rice and beans or something, and it had proved to you that you could actually do it. You could, yeah, you could you live without it. Yeah. 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 And, and, and I think that negative, I use these stoic principles that I keep in mind. One of the things that, you know, everything's temporary, fatalism, but practising... A negative outcome. So sometimes, from a business perspective, because don't forget, I own two schools. One of them's very big mm-hmm. and very young. 
everything that can go wrong is going to go wrong. And if you look at it that way first, if anything positive comes out of it, yeah. fantastic. But if the negative thing, ha thing happens, well, I knew it was going to happen anyway, because I'd already set that up in my mind. Yeah. And it's an easy way, it's a very, very easy coping mechanism to use. But Jeff always said, can you handle it? 99% of the time, yes, you can. Yeah. So that was a, always a concept. So even in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, I can always look back on things. And sometimes, say I get caught, say I get submitted by a blue belt, okay? A lot of Brazilian Jiu Jitsu black belts would beat themselves up ruthlessly. The way I look at it is, that's my job to teach these guys to beat me. Yeah. So in fact, one of my blue belts arm bars me and I have to, I'm submitting. That's your success in it. That's my day. success. Yeah, yeah. That's a win for yeah. me. So it's very, very rare that I ever get myself in a situation where I'm in a challenge, yeah. challenging situation that I can't get myself out. I never thought of it like that. That's a really good way of looking at it, yeah. It's perspective. Yeah. It's yeah. the first chapter of the book. Yeah. You've got to look at things from a particular angle. Yeah. Otherwise, sometimes... You know, you can beat yourself up for things that you don't really need to punch yourself in the face over. <laughs> you know? Spoke about your, your Thai boxing background. Yeah. What was your mindset and how did you actually find Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu? And what was your sort of ego going into that environment? Well, I was very, very fortunate that I didn't know anything about it. So um, when I first went to, I lived in America. And living in America, you are constantly exposed to the UFC. Mm -hmm. for, the, for the listeners that don't really know what, that, what the UFC is, and this can happen, that um, the Ultimate Fighting Championship um, was basically the, the, the basis, the baseline of mixed martial arts. So every time you put the TV on, there's always a mixed martial arts <laughs> fight. Every night. Like the there week. would be football over here. Like football over yeah. here, yeah. There's always something going on um, with, within the UFC. So, um, boxing was very, very much on the wane, and the UFC was very, very much on the ascendant. So, I would keep watching these things, and when people were grappling around on the floor, I didn't understand what it was, so I'd sort of watch it and go, cool, boring now, change channel. The more and more I got exposed to it, I started listening to the commentators, and they would say certain things, ah, this, now this opponent has got his other opponent in closed guard, yeah. he's got his opponent in half guard, he's just got to the mount. And I sort of picked these things up. And because I don't have any friends to call, I've got nowhere to go for a beer with anybody, I'm basically on my own with my family, so I go out with my family all the time. But, you know, there's only so many things you can sort of do with yeah, your family yeah. every night of the week before you need to, like, a release. So we all join a local gym. And when we joined the local gym, on the way out one day, there was a, a postcard that were put onto the counter that said, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is coming to your city. And now, where it turned out when the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Academy was that was run by Flavio Almeida, the Gracie Bar Academy, it was walking distance from where I lived. Right. Anyway, I didn't join straight away. I took one of these postcards and put it into the side pocket of my car. Came to about Christmas time, and um, I'm cleaning my car out, and I'm going to come back to the UK. So anyway, cleaned my car at the weekend. I saw the card, and I thought, on Monday, on my way home from work, what I'm going to do, I'm going to call and just check it out. I called... They encouraged me to come and have a free trial. Mm -hmm. So I went on a free trial the next night and I absolutely loved the free trial. It's, I thought to myself, it's very much like judo this, yeah. but with lots more groundwork than the throws. There's a couple of throws involved, but basically everything's based around wrestling on the ground. Still didn't know a lot about it. And then from that, because I enjoyed it so much, I had a couple of trials. Yeah. And then I just said, yeah, go on, I'll join. 
So I, I joined, and then within, say, the two weeks before I came back to the UK, I trained like three or four times a week. And, and even in that short period of time, I, I, I realised I was losing weight, I was feeling fitter. Yeah. I, I was losing weight and feeling fitter without even knowing it because I was so busy concentrating on what the move <laughs> was that I didn't even know I was sort of like improving. Yeah. So anyway, I, uh, I came back to the UK and I kept talking to people about it. Oh, I'm just doing this Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu thing. But because there's no UFC in the UK, everybody looked at me like I just took up karate yeah. <laughs> or kung fu. You know, nobody knew what it was. And, um, and, and I just started, like took it from there. Hmm. So I carried on tr going back and training. And then one time I came back, maybe a year later, and a friend of mine had just took up, a, took up running. Right. So he said to me, do you want to come for a jog one night and we'll just do five miles? So anyway, I put a pair of trainers on. I went and did five miles with him and he's been running for a while. I kept pace with him. Yeah. I didn't feel winded by the time I got back. And I thought, wow, I didn't realise I was that fit. And now I've dropped a lot of weight. I've lost about, I would say, a stone. And I was into this jiu-jitsu thing. I dropped my gym membership, went by the wayside. I was yeah. just into this jiu-jitsu thing. <laughs> and when I started as well, I was with... Don't forget, I'm in America, so I line up, I've got my white belt on, I've got my, my brand new gear on. When I'm at that, this end of the line, and I'm with these kids who are like 18, 17, in the US, wrestling is part of their high school curriculum. So when we were doing cricket, and we were doing rugby, <laughs> they're all wrestling with one another. Yeah. These kids, I was like a human punch bag for them, honestly. I was, they were just wrestling me to pieces, yeah. I didn't know anything. So I never submitted anybody for the first year. I never even yeah. got anywhere close to pulling a submission. How did you feel about that though, with having like your tie, and obviously tie boxing, did you have a preconceived mindset going into that? You think, well, I'm sure I'll be able to handle myself in these roles and that, or not? Yeah, not, not really, uh, because because it was so different. I kept thinking, well, if we stood up and we were going to bang a bit, I sort of fancy my chances. Right. But because everything starts on your knees and you're on the it's ground, alien. You're like, it's totally <laughs> alien to me. Yeah, and these guys are so prepared on their knees and. Yeah. And, and they knew how to apply pressure to you. They knew how to move around on top of you. So even mm. if I sort of scrunched myself up into a ball and thought, leave me alone, they'd <laughs> spin round all over them and they'd flip me over on my back in yeah. seconds. Yeah. Because wrestling's all about pinning your opponent, flipping them over. I never got anywhere. And then one day I just sort of turned around and I thought, you know what, I'm going to try. Try and submit somebody. Get myself into a better position first and then try a submission. And it took me maybe another six weeks. And then once I made that connection that it's okay for me to submit my partner. I started submitting people and it clicked. Yeah. And then things, and then I got my blue belt. But I then got to myself where my ego started getting in the way. Once I started submitting people and started thinking I was pretty good, this is where things started to slide slightly. Yeah. So I get to the end of my blue belt. I've got four stripes on my blue belt, so I'm knocking on the door of purple belt. And as I'm knocking on the door of purple belt, I start getting worse. And like you say, the last roll. Yeah. I would, I would get beat by a white belt. And I'm nearly a purple belt now. And, I, and these wrestlers are still coming at me. Younger guys, everybody was younger than me. And I thought, I'm getting worse off. I mean, it started crushing my ego. My mind started playing tricks on me now. And I'm thinking, maybe I don't want to do this jujitsu thing no more. You know, maybe I'm not as good as I thought I was. So the promotion's coming up, maybe at the end of the month. Right. And my name gets listed as one of the people about to receive their purple belt. So I call up Flavio. I said, Flavio, are you free for a coffee this afternoon? So he said, yeah, sure. Comes and meets me for a coffee. And I said to him, uh, Professor, um, 
will you do me a favour? Could you um, not promote me to Purple Belt? So he said, uh, right, okay, there's two things I need to talk to you about that request. First one is, you don't get to decide whether you're promoted <laughs> to Purple Belt or not. I make that decision. Okay, so that's the first thing. So it was like, basically, you're getting promoted to Purple Belt whether you like it or not, because yeah. Flavio decides. And, and don't forget, I'm older than him. I'm about 15 years older than him. So to be told by this young guy, listen, son, you're getting promoted. Yeah, so, yeah, so I went, okay. And then he said, but you don't understand what these gradings are about. See, in Thai boxing, in karate, taekwondo, but in most traditional martial arts, we feel, us, Westerners, I get good, and because I'm so good, my instructor looks at me and says, you are so good, my friend, here's your purple belt, here's your brown belt, here's your blue belt, whatever. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is not like that. Yeah. This is what he explained to me. He said, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is like a plan. And when you get a small plan and it starts to grow, you take it out of that plant pot and you put it into a bigger plant pot. So it grows and it becomes bigger. You don't wait for the plant to get big mm -hmm. and then you say, oh, that plant is so big now, I'm going to put it in a, into a pot so it can become bigger. Yeah. You say you get the smaller plant, you put it into a bigger pot and it grows into the bigger pot. Now you take it out of that pot and you put it into a bigger pot and it becomes a bigger plant and a bigger into a bigger pot. And this is how the tree grows. <laughs> so he said, what happens is you get your purple belt and you grow into that rank. Mm. You don't have to be good enough to be a purple belt and then we give you the purple belt. You get given your purple belt when you're not good enough to be a purple belt and you grow into a purple belt. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. I thought, and, and I'm so skeptical, I'm so British, that I'm going, yeah, sure thing. I'll be just the shittest purple belt <laughs> there ever was. And he was right. Yeah. As soon as I got my purple belt, everything started to click differently. I stayed with it. Purple belt was my golden period of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. By the end of my purple belt, I'm giving black belts a hard time. Yeah. Brown belts are no problem. I'm ready to be a brown belt, you know. <laughs> I was a machine by the time I got to the end of my purple belt. I almost feel now as a black belt because I've been coaching for so long and because I don't fight as much as I did, mm -hmm. that I was probably better as a young brown belt or a, a late purple belt than I am now as a black belt. All right. My game is different now. If anything, I'm stripping things out of my game and, and I, the things that I'm stripping out, I'm showing my students to say, try this, this might work for you. Yeah. But as a black belt, you know I, what works for you. I know what works yeah. for me, I know what works for my age, I know what works for my athleticism, I know what works for my flexibility, I know what works for my mindset so I can yeah. remember if somebody gets me in this technique, I can defend it. But there's no way there's no way there are so many techniques in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu that you will know infinite. it all it's infinite <laughs> so for you to get to sort of like a black belt level and think now I know everything yeah. it's not true and you were saying the other day after the end of one of the, the classes you were saying like by the time some of your younger students end up becoming black belt 8 to 10 years down the line it's going to be techniques that we can't even fathom at the moment what, what's happening yeah <laughs> we, we don't know because don't forget when, even when I started um, and to where I am now there are so many new techniques that just didn't exist when I started. Yeah. Because, like I say, there's some, there'll be some Brazilian kid with thick glasses on that's like a professor of jiu-jitsu <laughs> that's thinking about, well, if you use your body mechanics this way, you can get yourself into this position just yeah. by shifting your weight into a new move. It's like, for example, the, the Delaheva. For the listeners, the Delaheva is a, is a particular position 
that was developed by a guy called Ricardo de la Riva. Ricardo de la Riva only invented that technique because he had a bad knee. Right. Now it's just an accustomed technique that we all use all the time. But it was something that was invented, you know, and and don't forget in the future, I don't know what's going to be invented. Mm. No, it might be something that will improve my game. It might be something that I think, that isn't for me. It just won't fit. Yeah. But it might be something that fits. I'm still very much trying to improve my basic level of jiu-jitsu. Mm. It's almost like you get to black belt and you say, I'm, I'm starting again. I, I think that's important get... to know that as well, isn't it? That once you get to black belt, people will talk about being too focused on promotions in a minute, but people are like, yeah, I'm going to get my black belt. But once you get to black belt, then, like you're saying, you start all over again. And if, if your ultimate goal is just to get that black belt, then once you get it, what's your motivation? Then? Exactly. What... Well, or what's the challenge? Yeah, yeah. Does yeah. the challenge stop then? Yeah. You know? And this is another thing that I think is unique to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. When you get your black belt and it doesn't apply to any other coloured grades, your black belt has an expiration date. When you get that black belt certificate, it tells you this lasts until this date. Right. Now, if you're not active as a black belt, you're not coaching, you're not competing. So, Because there are two levels of black belt. There is an athlete and there is a professor. So sometimes you'll see Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belts and they'll have a red tab on their black belt. Mm-hmm. Now, on that red tab on their black belt, on, on that red tab on their on their black belt, they'll have a stripe on the top and on the bottom of the red tab. Right. That usually means that they are a professor of jiu-jitsu. So what they're doing is they they are just purely looking at it from the perspective of I want to be a really really good coach. That's what that means. Mm-hmm. If you see a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt that has a red tab and doesn't have a white stripe on the top and bo- top and bottom, that means that they are an athlete. Right. That they're, they're still in that phase that I want to compete. I want to be the next world champion. But they're not a the coach. Race. They're not doing coaching. They might coach a little right. bit on the side. Their own professor might ask them to do a couple of classes. But generally speaking, they are not a professor of an academy. Right. They're okay. not the owner and the professor of that academy. So once you decide that, that you are either a coach or an athlete, if you say, right, well, I've got my black belt now, I'm not going to compete no more, I'm not really going to coach, I'm just going to tell people I'm a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt. Right. By the time they get to a certain point in their life, they've dropped back down to brown belt. They've got to hand that black belt back in. All right. Well, or they can hang it up in the wardrobe, Yeah. but they really should put a brown belt on after that. And if they ever have their certificate up at the academy like mine is, mm-hmm. Quite clearly, it says at the expiry date. Now, if I make it to expiry date as a professor, I then have to go either go back to California or I have to go and seek a higher-ranking Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt who will then promote me and put a stripe on my belt. So when you see a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt who's got, say, three stripes on yeah. the belt, that usually means they've been a black belt for a minimum of nine years. Because nice. we only get stripes as black belts every three years. And then once you get two, I think, I think it's two, no, it's three. Once you get to three stripes on your black belt, then it's five years between the degrees. degrees. So once somebody gets to like a a coral and white belt, that basically means that they have been training for 35 years. There's no way around it. Hickson's just got his red belt on it. Yeah, full full coral, full coral, I mean... And don't forget, full coral belts, just as, as well for the listeners, are reserved purely for the Gracie family. Mm. So I can never, ever be a red belt. <laughs> ever. 
because I'm not a member of the greater yeah, family. Yeah. But what's of this tons and tons well when I say tons and tons of Brazilian Jiu Jitsu black belts in the UK registered right now there's about 295 Brazilian Jiu Jitsu black belts half of those are Brazilians who got their black belts and have come to the UK right. so some of them are still not active they're genuine Brazilian Jiu Jitsu black belts and they receive their black belts but yeah. they may be coached twice a week they may be not even coach at all they may not even compete but they are still registered as Brazilian Jiu Jitsu oh, black right. belts so if you think about it, there's only probably about 120 British-born Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belts in the UK. Yeah. So to have a, a, a genuine Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt as your professor is a unique privilege yeah, yeah, in the UK. Yeah. You know. It's amazing. Yeah. So yeah. and you know if any of the listeners are taking do you know want to take up Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and they they are looking for a coach, they can look at this. Mm -hmm. It's very very common in the UK. For the coach, the head coach, to be like a purple belt, or maybe a brown belt. Yeah, that's very, very common. Yeah. And it doesn't make those academies any less, by the way. I always take that into consideration. Some of these guys are so good, <laughs> great coaches, and great athletes, and great competitors. So still, don't think oh, because there's not they've not got a black belt as their head coach yeah. that I shouldn't train there. Don't think that's the case. Yeah. You as a white belt going to those academies, you will still progress, yeah. and still learn really, really well. By the same rule, <laughs> there are guys out there that have tied black belts around their waist that didn't get them officially. And there is tons, YouTube it, fake black belt. There are tons yeah. of them out there that are teaching things wrong. So do your homework if you do plan yeah. to, to, to make the plunge. Yeah. I think people underestimate the actual amount of time and commitment it takes to, to reach a black belt level. I mean, how long have you been... You've been training now? Um, I've been training now for 12 years. 12 years. Yeah, 12 years. And it, and it and it's not an easy 12 years. Yeah. And that's not the same as many other martial arts, is it? It doesn't take as long to get a black belt in other very, very martial rare. arts, is it? Yeah. Very, very rare. I mean, yeah. I, I've also got... This sounds terrible. It sounds like I'm brutally <laughs> on steroids. I've also got a first dan in karate, in traditional karate, right. which is where I started as a kid. What style? It was Kenpo karate, Kenpo. yeah. So... It wasn't um, very very based around kata. It was all based around sparring. Right. So I competed a lot as a kid. Yeah. Um, got myself into the national squad and national level. You know, so I fought at a very very high level as mm. well as a black belt and as a brown belt. But um, I started off. I was doing Thai boxing at the same time I was doing karate. So I was training pretty much five days a week. Yeah. And that took me, I would say, six or seven years. I would say. Um, to get to a black belt, but I started off as a kid. Mm. Started off as you know, like eight or nine years old. Right. So it just does take you a little bit longer. But the, it, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu doesn't have that element of you'll never see a kid wearing a black belt. Mm. It just can't happen. Yeah. Um, you can only be if you are under sixteen. The maximum you can ever get to is a green belt. Yeah. Then when you become sixteen, you automatically get promoted as um, to a blue belt. Now I've only ever seen two green belts in my life. Right. Because that means you've been training consistently in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu since you were three. So this is the weird thing, because these kids are effectively black belts at 16. Because of the period of time they've been training. Because they've been training since they were three. Yeah. So their body mechanics, they know how they move, they know their game. Yeah. They get a blue belt at 16, and they come on the mat as a blue belt, and they just kill everyone. Yeah. You know, they just murder <laughs> everybody on the mat. And they're thinking, where's this kid come from? Yeah. You know, because they're all of a sudden they're training in, yeah, they're yeah. training in adult classes, they're doing the adult, ad, you know, advanced yeah. adult level 
and they just get to purple belt really quick and they get to brown belt really quick yeah. and then they get to black belt. It is a totally like counterintuitive way of moving your body, isn't it, in jiu-jitsu? You think the, ways, the way we normally walk and the way we normally move, it shouldn't work in jiu-jitsu. It's all counterintuitive, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. So yeah. you've sort of got, like, got to retrain your brain that you yeah. think, naturally, I would put my hand here. Yeah. Whereas really, you should be using the opposite hand and put it there. Yeah. That's very, very common. As you know, Dave, yeah. it's yeah. very, very common. And usually when you think you're doing the right thing naturally, as a, just as a human being, and you put your hand there, it drops so you right to yeah. a trap, and that's when you get your arm snapped off. Yeah. So, um, very, very common. But the kids who are coming up through Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and the other good thing that I see with bullying charities now, they're trying to push Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And recently on uh, uh, Breakfast TV on, on the BBC, they had uh, a, a lady, she was short, overweight, specs on, and she just sort of said, if you're looking for a child to take up some kind of physical culture that will help them in the future, mm. I strongly recommend Jiu-Jitsu. Mainly because it's based around defence. Yeah. Whereas lots of the other striking martial arts are based around a jab and a cross. So they're very much... You've got to almost be get attacked and then you're attack on the attack. Yeah. Lots of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is based around closing the distance and just keeping yourself safe first. Basically stopping the other person from punching you. Mm. You know, we're closing yeah. that distance and we're keeping yeah. it tight. We're in like almost like a clinch. And then usually if we fall to the ground, we know where we are. That's you can also great. control as well, can't you? Lots Until of like a teacher turns up or someone else is going exactly to turn up. Exactly. Right, you, know, yeah. you can get that yeah. help when necessary, just by making yourself safe first. Yeah. So um, lots of bullying charities now are pushing jiu-jitsu, and even traditional Japanese jiu-jitsu. You know, jiu-jitsu is very much based around defence yeah. first, yeah. and then moving to um, you know, uh, an attacking position afterwards, mm. if, if it's required. Yeah. Hopefully we'd like to think that we can control somebody on the ground enough to say, can you get assistance? Whether that's be security in a shopping centre or a teacher or, or, or you know a, a, an adult in a youth club yeah. it can be anywhere but yeah. if you if that person is not available then hopefully we can sort of get ourselves into a position where we can render the person safe where we can, mm -hmm. we can stand up and walk away yeah. and these videos are appearing on YouTube all the time of, of kids that are defending themselves very very yeah. well and it's the confidence that that brings as well isn't it you don't necessarily have to go out and start causing trouble but if something happens it's giving these kids that confidence in it so they can 100 percent yeah 100% and i've seen kids who were quite shy and then they've become older and when they're young adults 16 17 18 we used to do where where i lived i lived in a place on the coast called san clemente mm -hmm. in southern california right at the side of us is camp pendleton which is the first place all the marines train all right so all the marines that are, that are deployed in iraq and afghanistan training camp pendleton so lots of the, the, the these marines that were civilians would train with us at doing jiu-jitsu yeah. so not only was i up against high school wrestlers <laughs> i was up against every Jar marine <laughs> yeah, every jarhead that came out of out of the us army <laughs> trained at our place so um it was always very fascinating to see sometimes we get these young guys like say 16 17 18 and then it'd be ufc night so the local bar would put on the ufc our jiu-jitsu academy would say we're all going meeting in sort of like you know the water hole at seven o'clock and we're all going to watch the ufc we'll have something to eat, have a drink and sometimes ufcs make people the general public larry you know they're yeah, all yeah. getting drunk and marines get drunk 
But some of these kids at 17, 18, from being these shy kids that first came, would just walk to the bar, they walk through the commotion, because they, they knew how to handle themselves. Yeah, yeah. You know, they were never trouble causers. But if anything was, it must have given that sense of confidence that if anything did happen to me, I feel safe enough now that I'm not concerned, that I'm not going to get killed. They, they yeah. were less frightened of the world. Yeah. You know, it would give them that opportunity, that breathing space to say, whoa, if it did kick off in here tonight, I'm okay. Yeah. Real high level guys like Flavio. Um, I've, we, were, we were having a private coaches meeting one night in a pizza place. There's six of us. You know, Flavio's ears are completely filled in, cauliflower ears. <laughs> so do the other guys look the same. They look athletic, they're all good form, they've got that Brazilian laid back, yeah. you know, um, samba kind of attitude about them. <laughs> There's a guy at a table, he's on his own, he's clearly drunk, his pizza comes out, he's not happy with the pizza, he starts berating the, the waitress and really, really sort of like being loud and obnoxious. And um, the guy stood up and he's got he's stabbing his finger in the, the waitress's face. And Flavio just turned around and said, hey, you know, cool, calm down, cool. Yeah. The guy calmed down in a second and just said, I'll just pay my bill and leave. But Flavio's level of confidence was at a level where this guy knew. Yeah, in some uh, signal that came off signal, or whatever. Like, yeah, yeah, that came off him. And, and, and um, you know, Flavio would say things like, you know, well, you know, a lion knows a lion. A gun knows a gun. It's almost like when the gunslinger came to town in, mm. you know, old westerns. Other gunslingers would know the gunslinger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they would have a sense, this is like a sense, um, just using purely body language that he sort of gave off that I'm young, athletic, I know what I'm doing. Cool it, please. Yeah. There was nothing disrespectful. He wasn't aggressive in any way, shape or form. But to see that actual happen in real life, I thought, wow. Quite powerful, that, yeah. Very, yeah. very powerful. Yeah. Very powerful. So it's not from, from the, having that sort of like physical presence, but it's enough to give younger people, wouldn't it be great? Because Flavio always says the thing, we, we learn to fight, so we don't have to yeah, fight. Yeah, yeah. You know, if, yeah. he always said this, if everybody in the world did jiu-jitsu, nobody'd do anything. We'd all know, no. we don't know what we're getting ourselves into, no. so. Uh, you know, I drive home after, after they're doing like the hour rolls on a Saturday. Yeah, totally. You drive home. And if you had like an accident or something, there'd be no road rage whatsoever. You'd just be like, oh, whatever, yeah, it's yeah. fine. Because you've, you've, you've got rid of that much like energy and stress from the rolling aspect of it and the workout in itself. There's no, there's no anger or angst or anything in there anymore. Yeah? Do, you, just do, do you ever feel that way? The sense of stress relief is so good that yeah. almost like the rest of your day is so serene and yeah, calm. Yeah. Yeah. But it's all like, you almost feel like you're in that sort of uh, Buddhist sort of yeah. state as if... Yeah. The world has become one, and Definitely. I know that. And, and we've been through the ringer for an hour. I mean, yeah. it's tough on a yeah. Saturday, you know. We're, we're rolling for six minutes, just for the listeners. Again, you know, we'll, we'll be 100% full contact sparring for six minutes. We have a one-minute break, and then we are back at it again. And you, yeah. you, you train with various levels of partners. Some are easy rolls, some are hard rolls. Some guys, some guys are twice as big as you, yeah. and some guys are half the size of you. But we all get that sense of feeling at the end of it. The sense of camaraderie and fun. Yeah. Sometimes I can't get home because all the guys are still sat on the mat talking. Yeah, talking. And we can't get home. <laughs> I can't get home. I can't lock up because everybody's having a good time. Sometimes I'll just take my shoes off. I'll sit yeah. on the mat in my jeans and a t-shirt. And we'll talk jujitsu for another hour after the roll. Yeah. But that sense of calmness that's coming together. And, yeah. I, and I think that everybody needs that outlet. Uh, whatever it is. It yeah. could be knitting. 
for all I know. But if you can get that sense of focused attention for a long period of time, that meditation yeah. for a long period of time. Okay, we're not all sitting in a room and meditating for an hour. Mm. But I personally feel that the effect at the end of it is exactly the same. Definitely. And I think it comes back to what we said before about being in that present moment. When you're on the mats rolling or whether you're knitting or whatever, you're not thinking about someone you've got to meet in a couple of hours or yeah. you're not thinking about dwelling on the past. You're in that moment there, aren't you? Yeah, or that interview yeah. that you've got coming up or yeah. or whatever it is, you know, whatever challenges that you've got going on with your life. I can remember um, very, very early on in my career as well, you know, stressed with your, with your missus and your kids. And I had a lot going on. I've moved all my family out there. My eldest daughter has decided now she doesn't want to live in California anymore. Right. So she was going to leave. She was going to go and leave, live with, with her grandparents. She was going back to college and she wanted to do things. Now, I don't want, want my, my 17-year-old daughter to leave, live 7,000 miles away. <laughs> And it became a really, really tough time, you know, there's lots of tears, you know, my missus is saying, have, have, we, have we made the right move? I've burnt my bridges, my house has been sold, all our assets have been sold in the UK, we are now in California, we've got yeah. nowhere to go. And it was very, very, very stressful. And, and jiu-jitsu was a, was a very, very calming influence on me and on my family as the head of the household yeah. to bring us to a point where we still felt okay about it. And it worked out. It yeah. worked out really, really well. Yeah. But there was no argument. You know, we, we, we never got, there was no screaming, there was no shouting to be done, there was no, you will stay here. We didn't <laughs> need to get to that point. Yeah. And, I, and I definitely feel that jiu-jitsu was definitely yeah. a calming influence for, for me. Yeah. I think when you're in that, that uncomfortable position or someone's got you inside control with a crossface or in mount, you, you become comfortable in uncomfortable positions, don't you? And you learn to almost... If you start panicking or get emotional about it, you're going to end up losing, getting tapped or gassing yourself out. So you learn to to take the emotion out of it, become more objective and try and remember the escape. Or if you don't know the escape, you tap, like we said before. Yeah, reset. And it's that problem solving. And you can tap that into your life, can't you? Absolutely. Remove the emotion out of it, calm down, breathe, remain present and take things step by step. A solution will be step by step, yeah. yeah. And sometimes as well, because of the nature, you're both in the same boat. Mm -hmm. Don't forget, the guy who's in, who's got you in the mount or is cross-facing you inside control. And for the listeners, these are both bad positions <laughs> to be in. Um, they're also trying to figure out how to end the match. So sometimes you tap and then you can talk to your partner and say, I got myself stuck there. What do you think? And then your partner usually says to you, yeah, if you'd have just done this, or put your hand here or push yeah. me here, I would have gone, you would have been out. Yeah. Your partner's always still trying to help you. There's not that ego. Now, I think in a lots of striking arts um, that your partner is almost frustrated. Well, you can't tap. You've got to either curl yourself into a ball and just yeah. say, ah, oh, leave me alone. Yeah. Or you've got to just sort of like muscle through it and end up with maybe a bust nose or a black eye or something like that. Yeah. I really love sort of the, the emphasis is on keeping your training partner safe because at the end of the day, they're... Your training partners are going to help you to improve, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, I gave a, a little mini talk. We, we give talks at the end of every class, and, and they're, they're designed to be motivational speeches. And sometimes you run out of ideas as a, as a <laughs> professor, as a coach. But, but yesterday, it, some things came up during the, in the, the final role. Right. They gave me an opportunity to talk about that and to say... Our egos, we always, it used to be a sign that we used to put on the door, you know, leave your ego at the door. It's not that straightforward, we know that. But 
um, while everybody's rolling it, and uh, a couple of footlocks came up, and we well, we want to try to stop that practice. Yeah. Unless it's by mutual consent. Now, mutual consent means that at the beginning, before we even start to roll, I'd say to you, do you, do you want to try footlocks? And you say, sure. So as as higher ranking um, jiu-jitsu practitioners, yeah. that's fine. If two white belts did it, I would say no. Because yeah. somebody's going on with a limp. Some of the knees are going to get... Yeah, or somebody's going to get a, yeah. knee, a knee or a foot. And most people don't really know how to apply it properly. So somebody could potentially get injured. Mm-hmm. It's a dangerous position. So I, I said to them, you need to understand that when you come onto the mat, you're not the, the most important on the mat. You're not the most important person on this mat. Your training partner that you're training with is the most important on the yeah. mat. Because without them, you can't get good at this. <laughs> you need them. So in in the beach of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you're a grain of sand. Yeah. That's how important you are to this. But your training partners are everything. So you need to really look after your training partners as you go forward. Yeah. It's very, very important. So that sort of like calmed everybody's ego down. We sort of become more respectful to our training yeah, partners. Yeah. And we never end up with... It does happen from time to time that you get guys who come in and they want to be the big deal. They want to be the big I am. And they tend to either wash out of the system and they just come for a couple of weeks and then they just go, oh, it's crap, this jiu-jitsu, I ain't never doing this no more. Yeah. And they'll go and do something else that they can feel good about themselves. It's usually an insecurity that causes yeah. that. Or that insecurity becomes less and less and less. The ego goes less and less and less with it at the same rate. Yeah. And then they tend to become really valid and valuable members of the team. So I'll be honest with you, people who come sometimes and when they first start training as white belts, they're dicks and they act like dicks. Yeah. And then they become friends after six months. <laughs> it's bonkers, <laughs> you know, and, and we can take the piss out of one another and they yeah. don't feel offended by it yeah. and, and it, everything becomes great. And there's only another sport that I see this be, being very similar and that's rugby. Rugby, where there's lots and lots of physical contact, it's tough. Yeah. You know, when you turn up on a, on a Saturday morning to um, to go into a rugby match and it's freezing cold and there's a light rain and you're running out in just your, you know, your shirt and your shorts and it's freezing <laughs> and another guy runs into you as fast as he can and his knees are smashing you in the face and you're trying to keep yeah, all of his legs. Yeah. And at the end of it all, we're all sat in the, in, in the bar afterwards having a pint yeah. and pine peas. And laughing and joking about what's just happened on yeah. the and But there's only rugby that I see. So we, we get, we're tending to get more and more guys now from ex-rugby players. Yeah. Seem to be turning to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu yeah. as to say, well, my rugby career's over. These guys are held together by tape yeah. <laughs> a lot of the time. They've got bad elbows, bad knees. They've got, you know, this fracture, that fracture, this yeah. joint, that joint. Yeah. But as long as they strap themselves up before they train, they can train, yeah. like I say, by tapping out, you will train till you're 60, 70, 80 years of age. Yeah. yeah. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> so what was it, at what point in your jiu-jitsu career then did you think that this could be a viable option as a livelihood to, to be able to own your own school and, and have it as a business? I'll, I'll be honest with you. This this was just very, very much fate. It was very much serendipity. I, I was uh, renting an office at, where we are today at the mm-hmm. academy. So I, I was renting the, the, the office and um, a friend of mine, the local jiu-jitsu school that I was training at, had decided to move. They were moving to Lee. Right. 
I'm based in sort of like Farnworth Walkden sort of area and it was a little bit of a bridge too far the convenience level of training Jiu Jitsu even though I've trained in it for years and years and years was getting a bit much right. a close friend of mine was training with me and he said why don't we just get a few mats down at the place where you know you've got the office let's throw the mats down in the, in the corner and will you, will you teach me some techniques so I said sure so in the main warehouse where we were we, we threw my nine mats down. I bought these nine mats. Now, to put it into context, I had a smart car at the time. I got nine mats and shoved them into the back of this smart car, held on by rope, and drove it from Radcliffe back to water. We threw the nine mats down, we split the cost between us, and we trained. So I basically, I had like a jiu-jitsu dummy. I'd demonstrate the move. Yeah. So then after a few weeks of doing this, he said to me, me, me son, and uh, my brother Paul, they'd love to come and train with us. So I said, well, that'd be great because then I can demonstrate on one of them. I don't have to do it on the dummy. And yeah. the, between the four of us, we should be able to sort of get something together. Maybe have a mini roll at the end, like a specific training kind of exercise. Mm -hmm. So we did that. So when we were rolling on these nine mats, there was a stack of truck at the side of it, <laughs> bags of concrete and barbed wire because it was a concrete fencing firm. Right. So I kept thinking, well, what are we going to do? So I ended up going to the head landlord and saying to him, can I sublet, can I take this guy's lease over? So he says to me, um, he was an old retired guy, he said, I don't care what you're doing there. Mm. He said, sure, if you want to, by all means. So we, we, I said between the four of us, do you think we, if we all put money in, could we keep it open? So we all pitched in. Right. And I ran that sort of like four of us. Then two other guys came along and then... They, these six guys knew four or five other guys. They tell a friend and they tell, they tell a friend. Next thing, there's 16 people who want to train and we've only got nine mats. Yeah. So I said, guys, I'm going to have to try and buy some more mats. So the extra money that we're all pitching in, let that pay for the, 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 the rent and then the money that's left over, we'll put towards mats. So we put a little false wall up <laughs> and then we got the 100 mats. They were in a state. We had to jet wash all the mats. Yeah. We, put the, we put the mats down and that's how we ended up with this school. Wow. Within a year, we got 120 students. That's amazing. Which became so busy that we had to have a spillover school, and that's how we ended up buying, uh, taking over Bolton. Gracie Baha Bolton. Yeah, that's how Gracie And because yeah. we were doing so well, I could prove to, we had an investor. So he said, well, because you've done so, so well with the Walton Academy, I'll give you the money for Bolton. And we just basically took out like a straightforward business loan and we ended up opening Bolton. Yeah. Did you see any, um, any sort of resistance or anything when you first opened up school? Because, I don't know, was you, because you've trained in America and you've come back over to here, was there much resistance from other jiu-jitsu schools or anything? We, we, or, got, we got it know. all. I mean, yeah. we, we, we got guys who were training at other places and then they would come and train with us, say, two days a week, training somewhere else. And uh, once we started becoming like a real school, and say we had, I think we had about 45 students. Yeah. I set up a Facebook page and said, you know, we have a real school. If you want to come and train, these are the prices. Come and train. And we got other schools. Should we just go down there tonight and twist them all up? Yeah. And we got a few threats. And then we got a few black belts from other schools saying, I'm going to come down there. I'm going to show your black belt what it's all about. And I just said, cool, mm -hmm. come down. No problem at all. And we got a few... Um, guys with really serious psychological issues who came down and tried to cause problems but right. they either stayed, Some two of them have stayed, one of them was washed out of the system and 
I just wish him well in the future. But he was definitely. I, we, we we were trying to help everybody through yeah, yeah, yeah. Some people are beyond that help. Yeah. Um, you can't help everybody. It's not a hundred percent fail safe. No. It's actually you set know. up jujitsu really, and I'm sort slowly realizing this that it's set up for you to fail really, isn't it? From the outset, because it's physically demanding. It's challenging on your ego all the time, isn't it? Your ego's constantly getting tested. Yeah, um, just, it, it, yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's it. not just that. I mean, and that is why there are so few black belts. Yeah. Because not many people can make it to what we consider for that to be level the, of time. For that level of time. Yeah. And for that level of... When I was in California, but by the time I got to sort of like the end of my blue belts, uh, maybe even the middle of my blue belt, I was training like six days a week. We had two, three world champions training with us at our place. Mm. We, we had like four black belts on the mat, constantly testing us and crushing us yeah. and showing us things. And it was tough. It was a tough environment to sort of like to stay through, um, you know, to, to to get through to that stage. Yeah. And and like I say, it's set up. It's designed for you to 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 say, can you make it? Yeah. Can you? Have yeah. you got it? And the the thing that it teaches you more than anything is. Have you got grind? Can you grind forward yeah. when everything against you? The number of injuries that I've sustained. Mm. Do you know? Uh, you know, ankle problems, knee problems. Um, I got skin cancer in California. I had a large operation which took a big part of my chest out, and then after it restitched, wow. and then I, I, so I was out for like four months. Now, if you're out for four months, all your training partners are all still training. Yeah. They're the, the guys that I was crushing. Before I went in for the operation, by the time I've come back and I'm fully healed and, I, and I'm still sensitive and I'm careful and trying to train, they were yeah. just killing me. Now that is ego destroying. Yeah. When you're killing everyone, and the guys that you were killing a few months ago are killing you, yeah. can you power through it? It's all about grind. Can you, can you still move forward when everything is against you? Mm -hmm. And ultimately, yeah, you can. Yeah. Gold falls back to the Jeff Thompson question. Can you handle the it? Worst case scenario. Worst yeah. case scenario. Yeah. So what's the worst that can happen? I tap out to a belt that's less than me. Can I handle that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if as long as I can handle that, well, yeah. yeah. Shake hands. Move forward to the next role. Yeah. Definitely. People start jujitsu for different reasons. Some people might just be doing it for confidence, for fitness. Whereas some people might be legit athletes. And when we look at promotions, how are you, are you promoting people? looking at how they perform against each other or is it more about the individual how they're improving in themselves there's always three things that i look for in terms of any kind of promotion and this is just flavio's way this is the crazy mm -hmm. baja way we're not even looking at athleticism we're not even looking at technique what we're looking at is attitude discipline and attendance right so we have a minimum attendance requirement so you've got to train on average a minimum of twice a week that's the only way you can progress to the next stripe, to the right. next belt. Yeah. So that's your attendance taken care of. Obviously, attitude and discipline are very... Yeah, they're hard to... They're hard to pin down. Yeah. They're hard to pin down. Discipline, I always think, not so much. If somebody's respectful, they, they follow the club rules, and they're respectful with their training partners, they act in accordance with um, you know, the ways of jiu-jitsu. Mm -hmm. So you know, they're bowing when they come on the mat, you know, they're respectful to me. Yeah. Uh, they're respectful to the training partners. That kind of thing, I always think, I always pull into the discipline cup. So if somebody's based around that, um, that they, they, that's, a, that's a check mark in the discipline. Yeah. Attitude is the hardest to pin down. Now, I've, have I held people back because of attitude? Yes, I have. Mm. 
Um, I've never demoted anybody. Um, that is something that I have never done. But I've seen two instances in my jiu-jitsu career. One where there was a brown belt who was a machine. He was a phenomenon, this guy. He would just crush everybody on the mat. He was killing black belts and he was a brown belt. And I used to ask the question, why does you know, Ricardo never get promoted to, to black belt? And Flavio would say to me, because his attitude stinks. Have you seen how arrogant he is? Oh, right. Have you seen how oh, arrogant right. he is on the mat? Have you seen the way that he, he taps his partners and then stands up and pretty much celebrates? No, oh, right. You know, this is a guy, if he gets the win on a black belt, he pretty much says, did you, did you see what I did to you there? <laughs> Flavio does not like this. Yeah. And he's not for, for accepting it. And that is why the brown belt never made it to black belt. And what happened? He switched schools. All oh, right. Basically, another school that really wanted him to become their top competitor said, you come and train with us, you come to our place. And if you come to our place, I don't care if you stink the place up, you'll be a great competitor for us, we'll get some trophies on the wall, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. we'll get some medals, we'll tell everybody what a genius I am for training you. Even though he'd never trained there, he'd yeah. go, and he basically switched teams. To me, that's almost um, like somebody being a Man United fan all their life, and wearing a Man United shirt, and having a Man United tattoo, and then just one day, walking around saying, no, I'm a City fan now, because yeah. Man City keep winning the league. <laughs> you know, it's that kind of mentality. It feels yeah. the same. Yeah. That's the only sort of like British analogy I, yeah. I can use. Then the other time was a guy came from another school. This is the sort of same story in reverse. And he's a brown belt. And he walked in and he's got a brown belt on and he's got a gi on with all his patches. And yeah. He's from clearly from somewhere else. So he gets on the mat and he trains with us. He's pretty good. I was a purple belt at the time. He was was good, this guy. And uh, then he trained with Felipe, who was my coach, who became my professor. And then then Flavio said to him um, at the very end of the class, pretty much, would you like to roll with me? Yeah, sure. So they roll. And at the very end of the class, Flavio disappears out of the class and then he comes back in and then everybody's getting changed. We all bow out and pull the line Mm -hmm. at the end of it. And it's as simple as this. He said, you can take that off to this brown belt. So the brown belt goes like, oh, okay. Takes his brown belt off. Flavio reaches inside his gi and takes out a white belt and gives him the white belt. And he says, you can put that on. Now, this guy, you can imagine the shock on his face and the shock for all us students that are watching thinking, whoa, how's this guy going to take this? And he says, there you go, you can put that on. So if you want to train next week, you know, come back. But please put the white belt on. Don't don't ever put that brown belt on ever again in my academy. Right. So anyway, this guy puts the white belt on, and he started at the beginning. Now to this day, that guy is a black belt under Flavio, right? And he's in partnership in an academy with Flavio. He just took it. Yeah. This guy. Awesome. This that, guy. Yeah. yeah. This whatever. This guy. I trust him. He's my professor now. If that guy thinks I'm a white belt and I've got to start at the beginning, I'm going to start at the beginning. And he went through every belt, to blue belt, yeah. to purple, to brown, back to brown, to black. And then he even went into business with Flavio in an academy in, in Arizona. Yeah. So That's yeah. his, his ego was not crushed. The rest of us, so we all went like, <gasps> sharp and take a breath. Yeah. What's this guy going to do? Is he going to flip out? Is he going to throw yeah. the white belt at Flavio and say, shove it? You know? Yeah. Never happened. The guy just took it in his stride, 
and went all the way through. And it shows you really those two tales, the contrast in the characters of yeah. the two men. That's all it shows you. That's, That's all it demonstrates that. to me. Yeah. Yeah. Now the guy who was very, very arrogant was probably arrogant in life. Maybe he treated his wife badly or his kids yeah. or whatever. Um, but that was probably the it's just in his nature, it was his character. The other guy, I can imagine I'm still friends with him today. Oh, Dave. Right. Um, he's a good friend of mine, Dave Weber he's called. Very, very good black belt. Yeah. And uh, when I, on the day I got my black belt, he was the first black belt I ever rolled with. Oh right. Yeah. So um, he got his black belt before me and he was he was a really, really, really good guy. What goals have you got personal and professional moving forward? This is an interesting question for me because I'm not by nature a goal setter. Right, okay. Don't get that mixed up with ambition. Um, I think ambition is very, very important. But sometimes goals and, and goals are too flexible, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and now this is only a personal philosophy because lots of people do believe that these are the goals, they have vision boards and they, they work around this. My kids do that stuff. Yeah. Um, me, at my time of life, I feel that I'm ambitious in that I want to drive Gracie Baja forward and I want to have Gracie Baja academies in every city in the UK. That's my level of ambition. Right. Yeah. It doesn't matter whether I own them. That is, that is not important to me. Yeah. What's more important to me is that I can grow students to black belts who become school owners in their local communities and then spread the word of jiu-jitsu. And I, again, even Gracie Baja... That's our association. That's our style of jiu-jitsu. I just want everybody to do jiu-jitsu. Yeah. Um, I don't care whether you do Gracie Baja or whether you do, you know, um, snake hips, viper jiu-jitsu, you know. Um, Cobra Kai. Cobra Kai, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't have to be that level of... It doesn't have to be my flavour yeah. of jiu-jitsu. Yeah. But I think that jiu-jitsu is really, really important for everybody. And the more kids that get into jiu-jitsu... I think it'll solve a lot of um, some mental health challenges that people will have in the future. Um, I think it will be very, very productive to everybody worldwide. And and so, Master Carlos Gracie Jr., don't forget, heart, uh, um, what would, what's the word, like our mission statement? That's, oh, yeah. that's the word yeah. I think they use, is, is jiu-jitsu for everyone. And I genuinely believe that. Mm -hmm. And I'll give everybody a shot at jiu-jitsu for everybody. Yeah. That's, that's my own real goal. So my first, my short-term goal is really, for, if I'm using it as a goal, is to fill Bolton. Right. The Walden Academy is full. We've got a great team here. We've done a great job here. We just want to keep this moving forward. And as we know, status quo is very, very difficult to achieve. Um, you know, if we want to try and keep the same level of students and keep the same standards and the same quality yeah. at all times. And I think that I, I'm doing that. Mm -hmm. I think I'm definitely bringing the right students into the coaching roles yeah. you know some some students who would love to be coaches and have approached me to be coaches i've told them to go into the coaching program but i can never see them genuinely being a coach at their level of development right now. not because their jujitsu skills are bad but i think that in terms of their their discipline and their attitude i think that those things definitely need to align with my version of yeah, yeah. discipline and attitude. And if we can get to the, the right standard, I, I think we're on to a winner there. So yeah, so my next goal, if you ask, if you know, if you put a gun to my head, is, yeah. to, fill, is to fill Bolton. Bolton. Yeah. So if yeah. I can get Bolton to the same level of Jiu-Jitsu as we yeah. are in Walton, yeah. now what would I do after that? I have no <laughs> idea. I'm not thinking past that. I'm not there. Do, if you said to me now, 
Do you fancy opening another school right now with everything I've got on with these two schools? Yeah. I'll say, not a chance, not a chance. <laughs> Ask me in another six months, I'll probably say, yeah, yeah, we're on yeah. number three and we're going to open in Wigan or we're going to open in West Orton yeah. or somewhere. The large party clientele is sort of middle, all right, insane, like sort of middle-aged. I would say, yeah, I would say the average age of a student here. So it's not really like a, a, a school that obviously people want to compete in competition, but it's not it's not a school where it's competition-driven, is it? Not at all, mean, no. not at all. And, and I've always kept that. And, and lots and lots of Gracie Baha and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu academies base themselves purely around competition. Mm. Now, the way that they do a lot of their promotions, I find fascinating. Because what they do is, every time a student competes, they get a stripe. Right. You get, you get four stripes on your belt, you change belt colour. So, you're getting guys who are three-stripe white belts that have been training for three years. Mm-hmm. or four years but I've only been in for three tournaments right. so it doesn't level the playing field when they come to compete mm. it's not realistic and they but but you know more power to them because they are probably training in that sort of like fight club animal day yeah. environment and they are you know I know schools that just beat their students up I mean they just crush their students and if they want to grind through that all the way through but the chances of them ever making it to black belt it's not a sustain- yeah. even from a business point of view that's not like sustainable is no. it <laughs> no it's not yeah. but that's why most of the fight club animal day competition driven um, academies have about 20 students yeah they, they will fluctuate between 30 and 20 on a consistent basis but they will never really build up much of a core beyond that because even the 20 that really, really are dedicated Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and they want to be the British champion and they're going forward, the, the amount of injuries that you sustain mm. training at that level on a consistent basis is too high. Yeah. It's too high. Yeah. And age is always against us. Time is always against us. Yeah. So if time is always against us and they pick up or not and sustain enough injuries, there will come a day where that British championship can, <laughs> can never happen yeah. just because their bodies wouldn't be able to take that level of training. Yeah. Just wouldn't, just wouldn't happen. It's promoting jiu-jitsu into your, your later years, isn't it? Going, is, like rolling on the mats, being able to roll in your, your 60s, 70s, yeah, I going want, into I that want later my, I want my grandson to give me a hard time by the time yeah. he's 16. Yeah. And I want to be able to roll with him when I'm 16 yeah. and challenge him at 16. So by the time, what is he now? He's three, so I've got another 13 years to go. So I'll be 63 when he's 16 and I still want to be able to... Yeah, I want him to, to have trouble passing my guard. Yeah. Do you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah that's yeah, where I yeah. want to be. Yeah. And that's a different attitude that I think that the, the competition-driven schools are promoting. Mm. That's yeah. what. That's how I feel about it. Yeah. It's a nice segue talking about training in your older years, because and, and you won't know this, but um, we spoke about you being an author. Yes. And you've written Zen. Zen. Yeah, Zen Jiu-Jitsu. The Zen Jiu-Jitsu book. Yeah. I actually bought that book in 2014. Ah. And it's under a pseudonym's the correct term, yes. isn't it? Oliver yeah. Stark. Yeah. And then came to train at Walkden and you was you were selling the books on the on the desk. Yeah. Never put two and two together, just thought, oh, that's a book of Port Lank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And only realised later yeah. on that it was actually yourself who, who wrote offered the book. it, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. In that yeah. it's weird, isn't it? And uh, you know, I ever I bought it but when I was training down south, so yeah. no connection there whatsoever. Yeah. And, and then yeah. you and you've arrived at this yeah, yeah. how wacky yeah. is that? Yeah. But you know, worldwide, um, I'm sort of like um, almost famous kind of thing because Oliver Stark, the books that are that 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 them I get several academies in the US that buy them uh, in bulk from Amazon. Right. 
and they get I give I purposefully give them a special code so they can get that cheaper so they can sell them to their students because mm-hmm. some academies just say as soon as a new white belt walks through the door they give them that book yeah as part of their training because it covers lots of things in like especially white to blue white to blue covers a lot of the concepts that us as professors just don't have the time yeah, to sit yeah. down and say, right guys, these are the concepts that you need to know because we're too busy instructing the lesson that everybody, we don't know, everybody's at different levels of development. Yeah. So as a new white belt walking through the door, it, it's a great learning tool. I don't over push it because I don't want to seem yeah, like I'm selling yeah, these, yeah, so buy my books, I'm getting a, I'm getting a royalty out of it. Yeah. You know, and, and how I got into writing the books was I've written some fiction. I've written some fiction that's been published as well. So I was already a pretty good writer. Mm. You know, I could write. I can sit down yeah. at a computer and pump out words for hours and then sort of like, and then it started off as a sort of like a mini project. I, I in, the, in my Purple Belt career, I went through this sort of transition period where Flavio had encouraged me for tr- to train for consistently for 30 days. Right. The difference between training on day one and training at the end of that month, just 30 days. Straight with no rest, 30 days on the bounce. 30 days on the bounce. Um, And to do that 30 day challenge actually improved me so radically that it's never gone backwards, it's it's never taken that away. Um, Training consistently, and I'm not saying you train 100%, it's like almost like going into a marathon, you know you're gonna be in for a a grind. So you're gonna have easy runs, you're gonna have your five miles, and you're gonna have your 15 mile, training runs that are specifically designed for the marathon at yeah. weekends and yeah. then, then you train light and you train hard so it's like it's like changing changing undulating yeah, intensity yeah. Yeah. throughout a 30-day period of time but the difference was dramatic so yeah. i wrote about my experiences over those 30 days and it turned into a book so i i just put that book i just turned it into a book and then i got my publisher to publish it it went online Next thing, it got an amazing response. So I thought, wow, what about if I, while I'm a purple belt, I can still remember what it was like being a, a white belt. Yeah. And these are the concepts that I wish I knew when I was a white belt, that nobody's just got the time to sit down. So I distilled, I was probably, I've probably been training about six years by then, I distilled that six years of information into white to blue. Right. And white to blue has become pretty much a consistent bestseller yeah. on Amazon. We'll put it this way, I don't, if I didn't do another lesson and this place closed down, I can still pay my rent and pay all my bills, yeah. just from the royalties from the jiu-jitsu yeah. books and my novels. So I've done all right, all right, yeah yeah, 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 yeah. But again, it's a, it's a downtown mentality that if you're writing a book, if you knew each manual or each book that you write is gonna be around 100,000 words. Most people, when they start in that process, would just think, there's no point in starting. Yeah, yeah. You can't think of things that way. You've got to chunk everything down into small little mini goals. Yeah. Can I get 350 words down every single day? Yeah, I think I can pretty much do that. It's going to mm. take me about 15, 20 minutes. So can I carve out 15, 20 minutes of time? And then before I write, can, have I got 10 minutes to just sort of like write down on a piece of paper, a piece of scrap paper, these are the concepts, these are the thoughts I want to put down. And even if it's a yeah. novel, it's exactly the same. You get your plot, your overarching plot, you break it down into you know beginning, middle, end, and then you work on your beginning. You break your, your beginning down into several parts. And I want the, the 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 reader to experience these these points, yeah. and then you drag the reader along until yeah. you get to the, the culmination of unveiling the killer. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, novel writing is no different. But if you think about 
get into your BJJ black belt, you say, well, that's an 11 year process and it's uh, blood, sweat and tears for that period of time. Most people don't want to start. Yeah, yeah. Why, why start? Why start? It, but we forget a lot of the time that the, the journey is the fun part. Yeah. It's the journey. It's sometimes writing these things and the amount of reviews that I get. I mean, I've got like 100 reviews on Amazon.com. And uh, the people that have got so much out of that book that I've never met and don't know <laughs> is astounding to me. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's amazing. It's an amazing sense of uh, a sense of achievement. Even though, I, like I say, I've even got another Zen Jiu Jitsu book that's in the can that's never been published. Oh, right. Um, which I'm thinking about, which is called Zen Jiu Jitsu Human Chess. Right. And I'm wondering whether that will ever see the light of day, but whether I get the yeah. time and actually, maybe <laughs> when I'm 63, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so going on from um, your books, what books would you recommend other people read and why? Well, doesn't necessarily have to be about jiu-jitsu or just anything like in general. Again, like that book that I mentioned, uh, The Obstacle is the Way. Yeah. The Obstacle is the Way is, is a very, very good book. Now, there is a follow-on book to The Obstacle is the Way, which is around this topic. It's called The Ego is the Enemy. Uh, Ego is the Enemy, though, is hard to read without the con context of yeah. the problem. One. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the Obstacle is the Way. Yeah. So you've got to really read The Obstacle is the Way and then it'll lead you into that. Yeah. So that's, that would, they would be books that I would recommend. If you're going to take up jiu-jitsu, I would say Zen Jiu-Jitsu, White to Blue, that, written by Oliver Stark. Yeah. That's, a, that's <laughs> definitely a good book to, to get you get a grounding. But I would also say that um, Jiu-Jitsu University by Saulo Ribeiro mm -hmm. is also a great book, yeah. a great book to read. If you're ever thinking of writing a book or getting involved in an artistic, artistic endeavour, I would read The, the War of Art, Pressfield, Stephen Pressfield. Stephen Pressfield, yeah. right. Read The War of Art. That's a very, very good book yeah. to start with. Um, it's all about uh, like resistance in resistance. it and what is your resistance and what is it? Absolutely. And overcoming resistance every yeah. day every day, and how we overcome yeah. resistance. And yeah. that, re that resistance exists. You know, we're just not aware of it. And once I read um, The War of Art, uh, I, I, I realised then lots of stumbling blocks that we put in our own way sort of created by us and if we can just grind through them yeah. first thing in the morning if we can get past that that just that small hump of resistance yeah. you, the rest of your days a breeze after that yeah. so we are, yeah. we're just we're limited by our own minds aren't we very much our, so. our perceptions and yeah. perspective that we talked about before and, and Pressfield yeah. does write some other great books that are definitely you know like do the work um, right. he's just written a new a, a new book uh, the name of it will come back to me. I, I, I only just read it, you see. All right. Um, and uh, it's called the knowledge, and, right. and it's it's pseudo fiction. It's based on his life story, yeah. but also uh, talks a lot about him becoming a writer and things that had happened in his life. If you read the War of Art, he, he briefly mentions um, some things that have happened in his life. If you get to the knowledge, yeah. then basically those topics that he, yeah, yeah, he expands yeah. on them and and talks about them in a lot more depth. But it's um, pseudo-fiction, but yeah. great, a great, great book nice to Nice one, sorted. Um, best piece of advice you've ever been given? In 1998, I was running the New York Marathon, and um, I joined a running club, which is local to here, mm -hmm. it was called Worsley Harriers. Now, if you put your name down uh, in, in the Harriers, now, I'm a brand new member, I'm like a white belt runner, and I'm a very much a jogger, I'm not a small yeah. guy, I'm not built for <laughs> running, but I wanted to put down on my bucket list that I'd run a marathon. And I wanted to do a good marathon. I didn't want to do like the, the Manchester marathon. I wanted to go somewhere and experience yeah. something. 
So I wanted to run, it's the first time I'd ever been to New York, I wanted to go to New York and run the New York Marathon. So um, I go to the Harriers and um, they say, right, here's your running partner who's going to help you run your marathon. So he'll meet you at weekends and you're going to go for your long runs, here's your, your programme, uh, you've got to do like five miles on a Monday, Wednesday, yeah. Friday, then you're going to do eight miles on Saturday with your running partner. So this is what happened. I get teamed up with a guy called Fred. Okay, turns out this guy's called Fred Doan, and Fred Doan owns Betfred. Right. It, just to put this in context now, back in 1998, Betfred didn't exist. It was just called um, Doan Brothers Cash Betting. And they used to have Doan bookmakers oh, right. all over the country. Yeah. I think he had about, at the time, 75 shops up and down the country, mainly in the northwest, but they were all over the place. And he would talk to me about his business at the weekend. Now, I'm a young business guy. I'm trying to impress him all the time. And, but because we got to know each other through running, I was never attracted by his wealth. As time went on, we got to know each other really, really well. And we stayed friends until I went to America. So, we've, and still to this day, we're friends. I mean, we go for drinks every, yeah. every blue moon. Now, don't forget, he is a billionaire now. <laughs> He lives a different life, but if you know, if every now and then we get to talk to each other on the phone, and I'd, I sometimes talk to him about business and stuff like this, this was the key thing that he taught me about life in general. Right. And I wrote this in my journal, and I remember writing it in big red letters, and it just said, "Patience. Anything that we are going through, anything in our lives, if we give it enough time, everything is temporary." But we need the patience to get through it. Right. Also, if we sort of believe that fatalism is an element of our lives and that whatever's going to happen is going to happen anyway, believe that and just trust in that where you are now in your life is where you're supposed to be. Okay? Mm -hmm. So sometimes we, we're grinding so hard towards these goals and because they're not happening fast enough, you know, you, you, the Ferrari that you've got on your, your vision board and your dream home hasn't happened because... You've read the secret and you've been yeah. trying to manifest the law of attraction. Yeah, the law yeah. of attraction. Yeah, and you, these things haven't manifested in the 12 months yeah. that you've been keeping that million pound check in your back pocket that you keep looking at. Just be patient. Sometimes the solution to a problem is to do nothing, mm. it's to sit still and just see what happens. See and what just happens. to see what happens. Yeah. Sometimes in my career, don't forget I've been self employed. I've, been, I've had different jobs as well along the way, but. Technically, I've been self-employed since I was 25. Mm -hmm. So I've got 25 years of the next pound that I earn has been down to me. Nobody else. Yeah. So whether my family eats, whether my mortgage gets paid, whether the gas bill gets paid, whether the credit cards get paid, has always been down to me. So I've always had to be self-motivated. I, I, I could never sort of like wait till the end of the week and wait till the paycheck arrived and then worry about how I'm going to deal with this amount of cash. Yeah. Sometimes that cash was not there, you know, and sometimes I've had more cash. I've walked into a Ferrari dealership and said, just give us the most expensive one. I've been there. Yeah. I've also been looking at the change in my pocket, and when Aldi first opened and a can of beans was a penny, going, <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is the best thing ever to happen to me in my life. A can of beans is 1p. So I've also been there. But sometimes... We don't think that, you know, have I been a bad person? Is this karma? Mm. You know, don't 
beat yourself up, all you have to do is just be patient sometimes. And that the solution to the problem, the calmest point sometimes is in the eye of the storm. Yeah. But to get to the eye of the storm, you've got to go through the hurricane, hit the eye, and then when you're coming out the other side, the hurricane starts again. <laughs> Don't think that it's gonna be, it's gonna stay like that forever. Yeah, yeah. But all you have to do is be patient, and you'll get through the other side of it. It'll happen. Just sometimes sit still. Patience. Be patient. Be patient. Yeah. Is the is the key, and that's uh, that's the grind. Yeah, yeah. Be patient. Grind through it. You get there. That's Everybody so gets there. Yeah. <laughs> nobody's in. Nobody's died of a bad day at the office. Mm. I assure you. Yeah. So, did you keep a journal? You said you write in your journal. Like, you keep, yeah, is that a yeah. daily journal? Not really, no. What I, and my journal's a little bit different. What I, what, again, I got this idea really from Fred. There's a book that I keep. It's just a, a spiral bound, black and red. It's mm -hmm. a black book. And they're called black and red. So you can go into any WH Smith and buy them. And they're like an A4, sort of like notepad. Right. They're not dated. They're just blank pages. Every time I come across somebody who's got a smarter idea than me, Every time I, I go through an experience where I've learned something, negative or positive, I open the book, I date it, mm -hmm. and I write the note about what happened. Sometimes I'll go on seminars and I take the black and red book with me and while I'm at the seminars I make notes yeah. all the way through it. Some of those notes I never ever come back to. Some of the notes I go back and I read them and I think, what was I thinking? Yeah. A lot of the times though, sometimes I think, I'm sure that there's an idea that's a concept that I've been through before, and I can go back and flick through my journal and go, ah, okay, yeah, I, I remember mm. where, you know, what happened there. Yeah. And I can say, okay, I know with the benefit of that hindsight, because a lot of the times as human beings, we forget. That's simply it. Yeah, yeah. Although yeah. I think if we didn't forget, there would be no world wars, because we know war really solves <laughs> yeah. very little. But uh, conflict solves very little, but because of our human nature, we have to keep driving forward. Yeah. And history, basically, is always us looking backwards and recording. But we have to learn from those experiences. Mm -hmm. Now, if we say that, say, just for example, that we've got three score years and ten. So we've got 70 years on the planet. We don't know our arsehole from our ear roll, even when we're, in, when we're about 20. So yeah. the first one score, you can write off. Okay, there's virtually just like learning to walk, tie your shoelaces, eat properly, yeah. brush your teeth. That's the first 20 years. After that, we shouldn't be making stupid mistakes, but we only make stupid mistakes because we don't record some of the learning experiences that we have. Yeah. So I don't keep a journal like a diary. I don't use it like that. I use it for conceptual ideas, mm. and I keep them in the same places. And on that bookcase there, you'll see the black and reds at the end. Yeah. Yeah. And they stack up and stack up, and then what I do is I file some away, and I keep some active. And they go all the way back to 1991. And I just keep those red and black books and I just keep writing concepts. And they look really cool, my journals too, because I use different colored pens yeah. and mind maps and things like that. And, I, and one day I think to myself, you know, if my kids ever get their hands on these things, I'll think, wow, what are these oh, books? Because I've, I've never shown them to anybody. They're, nice. only, they're only for me. Yeah. Marcus Aurelius, when he wrote his meditations, yeah. his meditations weren't for us to read. No, that's what I find most powerful about it, the most amazing, that yeah. they were just his thoughts. He could have put anything down, but the stuff you're reading, you're like, wow. Yeah. No one else was, wasn't for anyone else's consumption. No, it? and I only found this out, you know, as I got more into Stoic philosophy, yeah. but I'd already been doing that all the way since 1991. Yeah. These are instructions for me, 
They're not for anybody else. Mm -hmm. So in terms of keeping a journal, I don't like keep a diary. Um, nobody could ever read any of these books and think, oh, he, he, yeah, he stubbed yeah. his toe or he's having a bad day at work or, oh, this happened or that yeah. happened. Um, some, of, some of those elements, especially darker times, um, I can even remember one of the entries when I, I just sort of like put on and just said, it's always darkest before dawn. The, the, the worst possible point in your life where you are under so much crushing pressure, mm -hmm. if we can be patient, if we can just hang in there and we can do nothing and we just stay still, sunlight will come. Yeah. And, and, and it, the, the other element to that, I read a, a Navy SEAL writing about when they were going through their SEAL training. Everything's worse at night. <laughs> when we're laying in bed at four in the morning and we can't sleep because of all the shit we've got going on in our lives, is it a thousand percent worse as when that first chink of light, yeah, whatever, the, whatever there is in sunlight, whether it's lithium or whatever that hits the back of our retinas, yeah. will straight away go Whew. So sometimes we just have to grind through till dawn. Mm. That's mm. all we need to do. We just need to wait for dawn to yeah. arrive. Yeah. And it always will. The sun is not going to stop coming <laughs> up in the morning because you're having a shitty time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's, we'll always get through it. Always. You might be repeating the same answer, but <laughs> what's the best what's the What advice would you give yourself, 30-year-old self? My 30-year-old self? Well, that's a tough one because lots were going on when I was 30. I think, well, don't forget, me and my friend, me and my close closest friend, which is John, who trains, yep. John McClellan. Whenever we get together, we talk about certain aspects. And what we do is we check in with each other. How are, how are we emotionally? How are we physically? How are we financially? Mm -hmm. And how are we spiritually? Right. We have those little check-ins that we do. Now, relationships, we also throw in as a sort of fifth part element of the wheel. So we see how we're going on with our girlfriends, partners, whatever we've got going on with our kids and stuff that we've got going on in our lives. Now, I wish I had those check-in points when I was 30. Yeah. Because every, it, everything is never 20%. Say, say we look at five things and we say it's a 100% wheel. Nothing's ever 20% in each one. Now, when I was 30, everything about my reason to exist was financial. Right. So I was making a lot of money. I was worth a lot of money. I lived in a nice house, um, drove, the, drove the right car, had, wore the right watch, did all that stuff. Um, but the problem is it sends you out of balance. Yeah. Nothing happens within isolation of itself, does it? So, Nothing, yeah. yeah. So I was in, in worse shape physically, emotionally, I was way out of whack. Mm -hmm. If we talked about attitude, attendance and discipline, my attitude was way off the scale. I was, I was, I was invincible and I was immortal. Right. when I was 30 and, and I think that that's the, that's the inconsideration of youth that we think we're going to live forever mm. once we understand what mortality is that doesn't hit us probably until our sort of like mid 40s that's when we think Ooh, I'm on the back nine here. Yeah, yeah. say I live till I'm 80 and I'm 45 that means I've got less time ahead than I have behind me and that's when death yeah, becomes yeah. a real factor yeah so you start thinking about life in different ways. But I think if I was going to give myself some advice and I was 30, don't get hung up on finance. And I think this is common for 30-year-olds. You know, mm -hmm. my son-in-law sat in the office next door. He's 32. And his life, his brain revolves around 
how can I get a real bunch of money together so that my family will be secure yeah, in the future? Yeah. So that I can, I, I do drive a nice car and I'm going to live in the right house and my kids are going to go to the right school and my missus doesn't really need to work. Mm-hmm. They form around those things. And I think that, it, that finance forms a very, very strong pillar yeah. when you're in your 30s. It's not that important. It really, really isn't. Mm. You've got tons of time all the way till you're 80. I don't mind being a millionaire again when I'm 80, but if I, be, if I never became a millionaire again, I, would, I could give a shit. Yeah. It's concentrate on all the other elements and try and balance them out. Make sure your relationship's solid. You know, look after your partner, look after your kids. Yeah. Make sure you're emotionally stable. You don't want to be super, super happy one day and then deeply depressed the next day. Exercise. Eat right. Look after yeah. your physicality. Yeah. You know, no point in being a huge success when you're 35 but you couldn't run to the to catch a bus. <laughs> Pointless. Yeah. Yeah. Pointless. Yeah. Spiritually, um, I think that that is a personal thing, and I think everybody needs to look at that differently within what they need mm-hmm. spiritually. So I think if I had uh, if I had the chance to talk to my thirty self again, first off, I'll tell you what I would do. I would forgive myself for lots of the mistakes that I've made, and have that element of being forgiving in your nature, not talking to somebody. And holding that level of resentment till you're in your fifties yeah. is a mistake. Well, that can destroy you as well, can't you? Hold on to it, and that can that can manifest itself in all sorts of weird ways yeah. later on, can't it? Yeah. Rather than just letting it go and letting it go, and, it, and if the relationship comes around, it comes around. Yeah. Yeah. And if it doesn't come around, it doesn't come around. The other element as well is that being forgiven and, and having that forgiveness in the nature of your your life. Mm-hmm. I would also say there's no point in drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. It's, it's a stupid, and especially with other family members, you know, try and heal those wounds. Yeah. Make pains to to be good to other people. And you'd be good to yourself. Yeah. And that's probably the best advice I could have given myself. <laughs> Amazing. Well, I want to um, thank you for your, your time today and speaking to us. No worries. How can people get in contact with you if they're interested in coming down doing jiu-jitsu? Um, they can go to the website, which is Gracie Barra, spelled B-A-R-R-A, bolton.co.uk right. and there's links on there which will allow you to you can email me you can uh, there's a phone number on there you can call yeah. me directly text me however socially you, you connect with yeah, people you look, up the, yeah. look up the Facebook page Gracie Barra yeah. Bolton or Gracie Barra walked in you'll get hold of me on either of those yeah. two and there's a two week trial as well isn't there and there is a two week yeah. trial if people just want to come and try it yeah. yeah come and have a two week trial you know you can register on the website fill in all your details and We'll lend you a uniform for two weeks and you can come and try it out. Awesome. Well, thanks for your time anyway, Professor. No problem. Cheers. Thanks very much, Dave. Thanks no for problem. having me. Thanks, guys.